Welcome to the Doctoral Mentoring Masterclass for faculty sponsored by Walden University's Office of Research and Doctoral Services. I'm Lee Stallander, the Associate Director of Faculty Research Training at Walden. I hope you enjoy the Masterclass. All right, once again, this is Lita Downs, and I would like to welcome you to Walden University's sixth doctoral mentoring masterclass for faculty who mentor professional doctoral projects. The masterclasses are designed to allow faculty who have been identified as exceptional mentors to share their experiences and insights with the mentoring community. Today's session will be differentiating between practice and literature gap. The purpose of this class is to have professional doctoral mentors discuss how they help students differentiate between practice and the literature gap for their study. The goal for today's session is to provide a list of usable strategies for mentors to understand the basics of mentoring. On the line today, we have Dr. Lee Statlander, who will be moderating today's session, along with our panelists, Dr. Victoria Landu-Adams, Dr. Raj Singh, and Dr. Denise Land. But at this point, I'm going to turn things over to Dr. Lee Statlander. Welcome. Thank you, Lita. Um, I am Lee Statlander, and I'm the coordinator of faculty research training in ORDS. So let's introduce our exceptional mentors. Um, let's see, Denise, you're my first one on my list. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Denise Land. I'm with the DBA program. I'm an academic coordinator, and I've been with Walden University for 14 years, uh, working primarily with students and faculty to uh, earn their doctoral degree. Very good. Victoria? I am Victoria Landu-Adams, and I've been with Walden for seven years as a contributing faculty, and just dissertation only, I don't teach. But currently, I am one of the program coordinators, and I am in the public policy and administration program. And Raj? Welcome, everyone. My name is Raj Singh, and I have been with Walden since 2004. I'm a core faculty with the College of Health Sciences and Public Policy. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to share my experience of working with our DPA students and as a chair and committee member. Very good. Thank you, everyone. Um, so first question, I think just to put what we're going to be discussing in context, could you tell us how your professional doctorate program is structured as far as with the project? How is that integrated? Anyone want to jump in? Should I go, oh, go ahead? Go ahead, Raj. Yeah, so in our program, students are required to have applied research for the DP degree program. And it must be a public administration problem uh, that is faced by a public or nonprofit organization. And our students must articulate why it is important to address it within the context of the organization or even greater community. So those are the requirements. Also, they are required to have a written uh, organizational agreement within an organization to conduct their study. So those are the things that jump out in my mind uh, is yes. different compared to a PhD program. In yes, our and just yeah. to add to what he's saying, you know, most cases, the students must receive the client organization approval, as Raj indicated. And some of our students struggle with that. 
But without that, you cannot actually proceed because the organization must grant you the permission to investigate the problem and it's a need for them before you can be allowed to conduct the study. Denise? And I'll share an uh, alternative that we do with the DBA program, which is the Doctor of Business Administration program. We are also looking at organization business issues and problems. First, we want to have evidence of the problem, and then we want to have evidence of lack of scholarship in regard to solution of the problem. Our students can either do a pragmatic inquiry, a quantitative study, or a case study. Only the case study requires the partner organization agreement to be completed. The others work with the participants themselves and look for expertise in the field about resolution of that problem. So it's not organization-based, but it is confined to what's going on in organizations. Can you just give us a little definition of the pragmatic? Is that the term that you use? Yes. Pragmatic inquiry is a qualitative study that looks primarily, it uses semi-structured interviews. It can also be paired with organization documents that are publicly available and other public um, documentation that's available via the internet. Uh, it's looking for public sources out in the industry versus uh, specific to one organization. Okay. Interesting. So how do you see a dissertation as different from a practice based project what how do you see those divided we look at it as solving an actual problem in an organization so we're, we're while the theory might be conceptually framed as a view of the view through a lens of the uh, research you're doing it's about an actual concrete problem that we can see evidence of that occurring within the organization. And that's one of the things that we really have students look for is don't just tell me your opinion about it being a problem. Where's the evidence that this is a problem in the industry for organizations? So in our case, in the DPA program, <clears throat> the problem must relate to meaningful gap in practice. Very important to emphasize and practice. Well, in the PhD program, meaningful problem and gap in the research literature, right? So this is a fundamental difference. Here we look at meaningful gap in practice. And then the gap in practice is the administrative issues the client wants address. So the fundamental difference here is in terms of uh, the focus. Here's the PhD literature, right? The gap in research literature. In our case, meaningful gap in practice, that's the fundamental difference. Yes, that's true. Because with our students, with the DPA students, the problem must be in existence, in reality. That's the practice gap, must be in reality. So they have to have that issue still ongoing for them to solve the problem. So they reach out to the organization and they're able to say, okay, I want to investigate this since it is an issue in reality, and then they can investigate and provide deliverables, recommendations as to how to resolve that issue, either a skill or knowledge. Whereas for the literature gap, it has to be a topic area where there is a need in the literature. What is the missing or insufficient information that is in the literature that a researcher wants to investigate? Mm-hmm. And I'll I'll respond to a question that I see in the chat about uh, evidence, finding evidence about the problem. 
uh, in particular in our program, and that's the only one I can answer for, is we are looking, the evidence students can often find could be gov government information, census information, industry information from authoritative sources in the in the industry. It really depends on, you know, are we looking at marketing? Are we looking at finance? Are we looking at leadership? What are we looking at in, in regard to uh, business occurrence and activities within organizations? And Often students will will come across the strategies they they can find to solve the problem without finding the evidence of the problem, and so we're really looking for them. So who says it's a problem? Who says it's a problem? Where is that? And having them continue to dig for that and and look for those um, sources. And often those are those those may not be written about in the scholarship yet because they're newer problems, especially for things around employee retention since since the uh, post pandemic era. Those those types of things with uh, employees where we're you know they may not have so much scholarship yet. May need to be looking at uh, industry leaders and and expertise in the field about that. Yeah, so similar to Dr. Land, in our case, what happens is. You know, they may talk to uh, executives, managers, they may be familiar with the organization, there's a problem that is a significant problem that exists. So there are a variety, a variety of ways they find out what the problem might be in the organization, and then they pursue the agreement part of it, because they have to have a written agreement with the organization to be able to pursue that uh, uh, particular problem to, uh, you know, uh, to, to do the study. I'll respond to Beverly's question. So what do you do if there's insufficient le um, literature? If it's insufficient uh, documentation of the problem, you keep looking for the problem or you find a different problem. <laughs> find something that you can identify uh, that there really is a problem. And then the 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 literature we can use it we can uh, vary the range of what we identify as what is literature or not literature and it really is important to get as close as we can but with some topics you have to broaden your your range of what's going to be acceptable and that would be a, com a committee decision or discussion around what can we really find is the has the search been done well victoria i don't want to leave you out did you have any yes yeah. And usually, and and I know that when it comes to research, you know what I usually tell students: research is what everybody else says, but you, as a person, you are saying something else. Everybody else says something, but you are saying what is still missing in that research, and that's why in the literature, like Denise says, you have to read and read and read and read and document what you have read to see what is the gap in the literature. It could be a methodological gap, it could be a data gap, it could be a conceptual gap, it could be a knowledge gap, but you as a researcher must read and read and read to be able to see what is missing. What are the evidences there that are insufficient that you want to explore or you want to investigate as a researcher? Mm -hmm. so which and just comes to add on to what, uh... Uh, Dr. Landry Adams said, so we focus in our program uh, for students to cite existing peer-reviewed literature on the topic, the topic they might be pursuing, where they have to provide brief history or they are asked to provide both brief history of the broader context of the problem 
in which the study is embedded. And they have to review and synthesize the studies related to the current state of practice, whatever the problem that might be, state of practice, based on both peer-reviewed and I underline practice-focused research because these are uh, studies that are applied research. So we also want them to look at the practice-focused research. That's really important. Which would come first, that they talk to professionals out there and find a practice gap and then see if it's in the literature or do they work in the literature and then see if they can decide where they want to go with it? I don't know. So they go hand in hand. There's no uh, specific rule. They have to find the theoretical research or practice-focused research. When they are searching for literature, they should be looking at both at the same time. And it looks like we had a couple questions. Let's see. Denise had answered yeah. that. This student was asking if you use personal information as evidence. And this is what I usually tell students. When a student says, I'm so passionate about this topic and you are con and you are conducting a literature search. I say, your passion must have a literature to back it up. Give me evidence in the literature that there is a need for this study. So your personal communication, your ability to see and observe uh, what is going on out there is what leads you to the literature. It's what leads you to seeking mm -hmm. for the evidence that there's a need for this study. Right, and often you'll find, you know, you'll find expertise in public domains that mm -hmm. individuals from the field who have been doing this work uh, in their organizations have documented it that there that there is you know their white papers their their uh, industry explanations of of what's occurring in the field and so it's not it's not firsthand verbal personal communication there's some other documentation out there that puts it out in the public sphere and that's a supportive uh, indication of of the issue and of the application problem in organizations the the further we can connect that to what's been done in literature the better so the students not just taking opinions and and you know trying to get away from personal opinion personal experience of your own so what what else is out there what else who who else has other experiences what is occurring within organizations um, mm -hmm. separate from the student and across multiple places in the same industry or or similar types of organizations yeah, and just to add to Dr. Land, what she said, see, in our case, what happens is a lot of uh, governmental nonprofit organizations, they have their own studies uh, that they produce for the organizations. So those become really useful in many cases for our students to use that data uh, to substantiate there's a problem uh, uh, in, in the organization. They may approach the executives, uh, you know, should we work on this problem? Uh, do you support this study or things like that? So there are a number of different ways they can use these studies for identifying the problem, as well as sometimes uh, practice-focused literature for documenting the literature that has been done uh, you know, in the topic. And Beverly asked, does it have to be peer-reviewed literature? A significant portion of it should be, okay. but it doesn't all have to be, not 100% by any means, a portion of it. And, you know, there are very good sort of government sources, uh, foundation 
industry reports, reports, those kinds of things that are not necessarily peer reviewed, but they can document, uh, you know, practice issues in organizations. And so, you know, that's why we, we, we don't even, we don't even have a percentage requirement. The higher the percentage, the more quality is seen in the document, but no one should even try to get to a hundred percent because you do want to take in, there's so much real stuff going on in the world uh, and the publication window is so long that we want to, we want to allow space for those other types of sources that could be just as value valuable. Yeah. Same thing in our case too, is there is no percentage set, but it's a good idea. At least when I supervise my students, I tell them, you should have uh, some uh, peer-reviewed literature, but because of applied research, you can use other sources as well that have been produced by or created by governmental or nonprofit organizations. So, uh, you know, it's a good idea, I tell them, and they should have some peer-reviewed, but there's no percentage requirement for us as well. With the dissertation, you often have like a year limit, like you can, have to have a high percentage of within the last five years or so. Yes. Do you also have that for this? We do have a similar quality quality indicator of the last five years because especially with applied practice degree and applied practice study is you want fresh stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, when when I when I see stuff around student, I mean employee retention and employee engagement that is, you know, eight or ten or even more than five years old, I'm like uh, the world's different now. <laughs> yeah. You know, what do we got? You know, we, it's really how serious can we take what what was happening 10 or 15 years ago in organizations in, in regard to employees? Employees yeah. are different now. Organizations are different in regard to employees. And we need to reflect that if if we're going to have a merit moving forward. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you see, same thing in our case, too. In a PhD program, a uh, majority should come from literature published in the last five years, but there are occasions, for example, somebody might be doing a motivation-related study, they could use Maslow's hierarchy of needs from mm -hmm. 50s or uh, things like that, but majority should come in the published in the last four, five years mm -hmm. or so. But there's no... But, um, you know, yeah. using Maslow would be an excellent... Uh kind of idea to, to reflect on because yeah. what how employees felt 20 years ago or 10 years ago or now could yeah. all be placed on on Maslow's hierarchy and could be very different yes we could you know it could be very different as to what people want and how they characterize even those those different levels exactly exactly so yeah, I want to speak that's, on a foundation, that's a foundational work so they could cite that but exactly. then when they use it today to do the same uh, type of study lit motivation, things might be different. They can report that as well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I want to speak to both actually, because even for the practice gap, because it's a problem in reality, we do not expect that you'll be having some literature that are way back because the focus is on that uh, topic and what the organization needs. For example, I did have a student that conducted a study on evaluating safety, permanency, and well-being outcomes for adolescents in the family home. So the literature will be current because it's about this organization and they have that program, they collected data, they wanted to see, is it working or not? And so everything, every evidence there will be more current and she'll be able to provide, and which she completed already, 
provided findings that says this part is working, this part is not working. And for the doctoral dissertation too, a problem should be very current. Like uh, Denise and Raj said, mm -hmm. things have gone, you know, everything has changed. And so when I see literatures being referred to and they are current within five years, I always, you know, applaud that because yes, this is very important. Even if you cite old, let us know what obtains 10 years ago, five years ago, and now. Mm -hmm. That way we can see all of that in your literature. Do you still require the student to have an appropriate theoretical framework or model or something in this type of project? Yes, we do a conceptual framework, which they should mm -hmm. use for their lens of analysis of their uh, data. Okay. And that, and then, and that we would want the uh, student to identify the seminal work that they're looking for, that they're looking for, for the theory uh, that will be their conceptual framework in most cases, or a theoretical framework for a quantitative study. Uh, they may use a more evolved version of that theory and then show because sometimes some th some theories have been uh, revised or added to over over the years so that they may pick a, a later date mm -hmm. or, or someone else's version of of that study but that's where we particularly want them to be reading the the actual original stuff <laughs> so that they have the, have have it from the theorist's uh, perspective not not what has been evolved over the many years for our DPA two, we require a conceptual framework or a model. For yeah. the dissertation, we want the theoretical framework, but you could use both, either theoretical framework or conceptual framework in your theoretical framework. But for the DPA, it has to be a conceptual framework. For instance, if you are conducting an evaluation of a program, you want to see the model, what is the objective of this program, the input, and the implementation and the outcome, that becomes a logic model for that program that you are trying to evaluate. Any other thoughts, Raj, on that one? I think both of them have represented uh, very well. Dr. Landu Adams, uh, she talked about conceptual framework for our program. We require them to have conceptual framework. And uh, I think Dr. Land said that we they require both, but in our case, just one, which is conceptual framework. Okay. So where does social change fit in this? I could see that students would say, you know, because this is a real practice problem, you know, that's my social change. Is that valid? Would you require something different? You know, very often students come to us because they care about something going on in the world that is the social problem. <laughs> Yeah. And, and and we're like, no, you can't work on the social problem. You're going to work on the organizational business problem, and that will have effects out in society. One of the things that I've been working on is to really look at the social determinants of health and the domains of social determinants of health and how studies that students do in the business, DBA, can change organization function and have a better result for people being able to access the health characteristics that they need to do better in society. So it's really tying it together. And, and we find that uh, helping students understand that actually broadens their perspective of what they can do for their study because it it, it links their passion and it links the, the business application purpose of, of the degree. Mm -hmm. Other thoughts, anyone? 
Yeah, so in our case, uh, similar to what Dr. Land said, I mean, for example, if they are trying to look at the issue of employee turnover in the organization, well, if you can do something about it, if you come up with a plan to reduce the turnover, well, employees, maybe they're having issues with the management or they're having issues with the, uh, you know, the compensation plans or whatever the problem might be, less turnover means maybe happier employees, management is happier. So in turn, you're really having a positive social change effect uh, on the employees as well as the organization. So it depends upon the topic, but every topic that at least I can tell you when I've supervised, they had to tie it with the social change implications, which is a positive social change implication, which may be, uh, you know, their working conditions sometimes, or sometimes also health issues as well. So this is how we try to work with at least uh, the ones I have supervised in my uh, my group or my students. Yes, that's what it is. You know, we yeah. tie back the findings to what the organization needs, which is their deliverables in DPA, and it's usually is to effect positive social change. So I believe they are tied together. Yeah. Okay. So how does all of this work then with the partner organization? How much input are they having on what the problem is perceived as versus the student and you as a committee member? How, how do all of you decide on what kind I of think problem? for us, for DPR, at least for the student I supervise, we have no influence over where they go or where they intend to uh, solve the problem. And this is why it is required that we receive, in the prospectus, we receive the client's organization um, signature that they are allowed to come and investigate such a problem. Because this study can be conducted either qualitatively or quantitatively. You know, in quantitative, you can collect archival data, secondary data that uh, they will utilize. In qualitative, you will be interviewing folks. And so, like one of my students now that has an issue, the leadership that allowed the study mm -hmm. to be investigated is out. And now you have to find, meet with the new leadership that mm -hmm. still thinks there is still that problem in existence. And the good thing is that the leadership, the current ones, oh yeah, we still have that issue. So that is, we are so lucky to have yes. that. <laughs> so that is why, otherwise we, we may have to start all over again. But yeah. we are so lucky that the organization indicated, oh, they still have that issue. So we are just waiting to have the signature of the new leadership and to resubmit yeah. that. Yeah. So we have no influence over that. Yeah. So I, as Dr. Landy Adams said, you know, um, See, students identify the organization where the gap in practice exists, so they have to find on their own, right? For example, it could be uh, some gap in program evaluation or employee turnover or any kind of strategic planning that doesn't exist, need to be created or recruiting volunteers in a nonprofit organization, some of the examples. But it is their responsibility to identify the organization where they could have an agreement and also a significant practice gap exists. As a chair, uh, my responsibility I feel is to guide them to, uh, to keep in mind it has a significant problem, but then also help them to have a good conversation with the management executives to 
have an understanding before they start working on this problem so that they were going to support during data collection phase of the study. Because I have found in the past, sometimes people verbally say we'll support you or even write an agreement, which maybe uh, uh, they don't think through. But then when the data collection phase comes, they don't support the students. So that becomes a problem. So mm -hmm. I try to uh, see them a future with the, doing their study, uh, what kind of issues may come up with the organization, especially with data collection. So have a good conversation, good understanding, and even maybe in a written agreement, write that will support you during data collection phase. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we have we have two types of studies that require a partner agreement. We have the case study that the traditional DBA student can use, and then we have a client organization partner agreement that actually doesn't require the partner partner agreement, but is a case study. So the partner agreement is written in around a service order agreement that the IRB has authorized them to be using. And in the consulting capstone, students work with an organization for eighteen months to two years to provide them with business consulting ar around use of the Baldridge Excellence Framework. And so it goes through seven different categories of organization characteristics to focus on a, on a business problem identified by that client organization. And then the student uses their business expertise to help, help the organization leadership resolve that problem, um, all with the foundation of the Baldridge Excellence Framework. So that's worked under a service order agreement. Um, very similar to a partner partner agreement, but differently signed. It's between the student and the organization. And uh, then the case study that the traditional students use, and that's that case study, they do not find their, their participant organization until after they have the proposal written. So they're identifying an organization that has already solved that problem. And they they're working with the organization to understand how did you solve this business problem out there? And that's the, that's the basis of their case study. One thing that you had mentioned there, and I just want to go into a little bit more is, can they do it, do these problems, I'm sorry, these projects in their own workplace? Is that allowed? Um, if it's a very big, if it's a very big workplace, <laughs> So uh, the IRB has some um, very good boundaries around that that identify for the student how they they cannot be in direct control of the individuals or or people that they are getting data from the participants in the study. So if it's a very big organization where they're in a different division or a different department or a different city or something like that, it could be done within one's own organization. Uh, but generally speaking, we make sure that students have the have the appropriate boundaries around all that. And it's an organization appropriate for doing the study. I mean, a lot of times, you know, are we doing a program evaluation or a case study on an organization that has the problem and we're helping them solve the problem? Or are we doing a case study on an organization that has already solved the problem and we want to figure out how they did that and have that shared? Mm -hmm. Yeah, same with um same with us too, because I remember once that I had to work with, she was a consultant, she was the lead. And the RB said, No, you cannot be a lead if you have to interview directly. So mm -hmm. it's either you send out a survey if you want to continue in this path, but if not, you have to choose another organization. Right. So and somebody sent a question that in DPA, do you do both qualitative and quantitative, the answer is yes. 
because uh, the two topics I referred to earlier on, one was a quantitative study, pure quantitative, and the other one was qualitative. So uh, you can do both mixed method, however mm. you choose to do it. So it's allowed. I just want to add what Dr. Lando Adams said. See, in our DPA program, quantitative does not quantitative does not mean that they have to test a hypothesis. It's not really that. Quantitative means it could be um, uh, use a lot of quantitative techniques without hypothesis testing. If you're in a PhD program, if you say quantitative, means you have to have some hypothesis to test, prove, or disprove. So there's a slight difference in the uh, DPA program where they could have a quantitative study, but not necessarily uh, test a hypothesis. So this uh, this is something different. And Morris is asking, um, but what specific designs and can you use case studies? In DPA. Yeah. What specific? Uh, we use a generic qualitative design because it's, with DPA, it's so general. So you just don't want to restrict yourself to a particular design that you have to be very thorough with it or you get the data, you are not able to analyze it. So we encourage generic qualitative design if you are conducting qualitative studies. Mm -hmm. And for the quantitative, like my student, like uh, Dr. Raj says, it doesn't have to be hypothesizing the uh, study. I mean, your research question. You can have descriptive questions and descriptive research analysis, non-parametric statistics, and the study was still great. And I do want to open it up for questions from our audience, if anybody has one. If you want to put up your hand, Lita can unmute you. Sorry. And Raj, did you have any other comments on the various things we were going into, like your workplace, that kind of thing? No, I think uh, we have covered everything I wanted to say, or Dr. Land or Dr. Landu Adams. Uh, we have covered almost everything I can think of. I don't have anything to add. Okay. So if you if there's a new faculty member that is going to be taking on a student in your program, what advice would you give them of working on a project with the student? Try to understand what drives the student's passion for this topic and then uh, have them share with them, the faculty, the justification, where's the evidence of the problem? So how to, how to find that? And, and often faculty will need to help students figure out how to do that or, or really uh, connect them to the library to do that because students don't have a lot of responsibility. Uh, experience doing that sometimes. But we want them, that's one of the skills we really want them to be able to uh, later practice so that they can they can use that professionally. So when you come up with the problem, how are you going to solve it? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. uh, first, what's the evidence? You know, the, the problem probably isn't, you know, across the world. If it is, then we might need to address another problem first, <laughs> especially in our organizations. But then how do we how do we figure out who is doing this in a better way, who has solved it? Very well said, Dr. Len. So, uh, Dr. Lee Stanlander, you're talking about the new faculty member or new committee? Yeah, member? yeah. So I, just... I think for the new committee member, it will be wise to be familiar with the entire process of completing the projects, right, from beginning to end, from 
prospectus all the way through. But also I found that some of our students, they communicate differently. Some of them, they like to talk on the phone, some via email, some different methods. So identify what it is that works for them. So that's another part mm -hmm. I think share and committee member I find is really helpful. Um, the other part is sometimes uh, they need a little nudge to help them to get on track because they're working and they might be sidetracked with their studies. So uh, keeping in touch with them occasionally, especially if you're a committee member with the chair, see what's going on uh, with a student. Uh, so those are the things that can be helpful to get familiar mm -hmm. with the process completely because I found in my experience with new committee members, they may not know the entire process. Uh, or sometimes, for example, uh, new assignments come in and person may not know what responsibility they have as a, uh, even in some cases I found even a chair to advance a student from uh, proposal to um, the uh, IRV phase. So mm -hmm. knowing the process I think is important, but also understanding what a student's needs are and be mindful of for the sensitivities involved in working with them to support and right. help yeah. We're really looking for faculty who are really hands-on with their students, mm -hmm. in contact with them, preferably verbally con verbal contact, especially frequently, mm -hmm. especially early, uh, and really giving them the extra, um, you know, not doing it for them, but showing them how to do it. Uh, is it a literature review they need to do? Is it uh, clean up on their, their writing that they need to do? We, you know, a lot of times they are, uh, you know, backseat writing instructors, <laughs> uh, you know, do it this way. This this could could help with the quality of how you say that this would make a better format in your paper. This could be a better paragraph structure and just showing them the way of being very hands on and doing that and uh, not just waiting, not just sitting back and waiting for the paper to come to them and making a cursory few comments on it, but to really be hands on and, and say, you know, this is a good way to present this. If you rearrange this, it could be uh, better understood. This is how you can use evidence or and using our many, many resources in this in this university. We're very blessed. Uh, but giving them don't just saying go go to the writing center and figure out synthesis. Um, <laughs> give them the exact link of the thing you want them to see. Right. And then say, I'd, I'd love I'd love you to try this in a paragraph or two and give it back to me so I can see it. I love and, that. and that makes it a, a short deliverable that that they can you, they can do in a few days. They can, you know, they won't go away for six weeks yeah. <laughs> while they're working on their literature review. Yeah. When you, you know, you don't want to find out in six weeks they didn't get the idea. Yeah. <laughs> you want to find out sooner versus later. Nice. I like that a lot, actually. Just having them try a paragraph rather than saying, you know, rewrite chapter two or whatever. Yeah. No, <laughs> I can't Actually, do that. In my, case, in my case, what I do is every Friday, we have a half an hour meeting with all my uh, doctoral students. Mm -hmm. And we talk about any issues, IRB issues, proposal issues, dissertation issues, mm -hmm. doctoral study, DPA study issues. So in those half an hour, they just get so much help from each other, actually, each yeah. other uh, for editing and APA requirement and the rest, you know, so this is really helpful, I find. And sometimes uh, committee members may also join too, if they want mm -hmm. to. Yep. Are your meetings just with the student 
But yeah, what students do you have all of your students try to? All of my students, not, I mean, I, they're invited. Some of them, they can make it, some they cannot. But I meet every Friday during the term for half an hour only, just half an hour from 8 to 8.30, uh, which is uh, 10 o'clock central time, 10 to 10.30. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. has been very helpful to iron out any kind of little details with IRB or research methodology, who to the contact, what to do, and writing yep. help and things like that. Yep, those regular check-ins really help. That's one of the things yeah. we do at the consulting capstone. And yeah. we do that every Tuesday evening, actually. Yeah. Um, and we involve um, faculty committee members, alumni and students. And the students know that 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 the alumni are in there so that if they disclose, <laughs> they disclose, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but because we're all doing case studies, uh, organization names are never mentioned. We use right. pseudonyms. And so they're never talking about their client in particular uh, if if they're talking about their client. But they also, you know, they help one another personally in, in how to address all the challenges associated with, with completing their doctorate. Yeah, that's a great idea. We are out of time, but I do want to thank you both so much. Um, <clears throat> I know Dr. Victoria had some issues that she had to go and take care of, but I appreciate so much you guys hanging in there and giving us your great ideas. Thank you. For Thank, you. Sure. Thank you. And Thank I you. want to open it again that anyone in the audience, if you have additional tips or insights that you would like to see included in our online doctoral mentoring guidebook, write to me and I will add them in as well as all of the things that we discussed today. We're not going to have our next doctoral mentoring um, masterclass until January. So everyone can, we'll get some notices on those. So thank you. Thank you, Lita, for all that you do. Thanks. <laughs> thank you are so, so welcome. And for those upcoming notices, please do take a peek at the OTLE Weekly and they'll be listed there so you can get your spot reserved. Okay. Have a wonderful holiday, everyone. And this was a Thanks. lovely session. Thank Very informative. You, Thanks, Lee. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Glad working with you. Thank you. This podcast was sponsored by Walden University's Office of Research and Doctoral Services. Our music was by Excel Music Publishing licensed under Creative Commons.